If you listen close there, you could hear people cheering for Connery Ritter. He's a high schooler in Montana, and he ran that race before the pandemic stopped those kinds of big gatherings, but he still runs. He also participates in martial arts. Connery is a busy kid. He runs cross country. He has a, a 5K PR of 1756. <laughs> he plays the tuba. That's his mom, Nicole Rosenleaf Ritter. She's pretty proud of him. But she also worries a lot. See, Connery is one of those people we've heard so much about during this pandemic. He's at risk. So um, Connery is now 16, and he was diagnosed with pretty serious asthma when he was three or four. He was hospitalized when he was four um, for asthma. And the kind that he has is not sort of the stereotypical wheezy kind. It's um, called cough variant asthma. So when he gets sick, he basically just can't stop coughing. Um, And he is triggered not by exercise or allergies, but by cold and flu or, you know, viruses in general. So when he gets sick, any kind of sick, it just immediately settles in his lungs. So a pandemic of a respiratory virus like COVID, well, it's basically Nicole's worst nightmare. Add to that the coming flu season. Well, both Nicole and Connery know all about the flu. They learned more than they ever wanted to know back in 2009. That year, he was just sicker than usual, and we couldn't find a time when he didn't have like a little cold going to go in and get the flu shot. Um, So it just, it, it, we just didn't get it done. 2009 was the year of the last pandemic, swine flu. In the end, fewer than 13,000 Americans died. But during that year, an H1N1 flu virus targeted young people who had no immunity to it. Connery was one of them. He was so incredibly sick. Um, I've I've never seen him like that. I hope to never see him like that again. Um, And that's having, you know, lived through whooping cough, several rounds of pneumonia. Um, This was definitely the scariest um, that that we've had. Because of his asthma, he coughed and struggled with his breathing, but Nicole knew what to do about that. Something else scared her more back in 2009. He also had a very high fever, um, which normally isn't a, a huge part of what happens to him. You know, he's he has fevers sometimes with things, but this one was so high. Um, and I just remember him lying on the couch Uh, in the house that we lived in at that time, out of it. That's the most powerful memory she has of her family's experience with the last pandemic. And her response to it is visceral. Just being so scared that he was so out of it (laughs) because the fever was just like scrambling his brain. What's it like when your baby is that sick? I lie awake counting the seconds between the coughs and hoping that it will extend and waiting for the time when we can give him an albuterol treatment and, you know, just just wanting that time to come faster than it's coming. And now, a new pandemic. 
and a new flu season. And so when I think about the two of these things colliding as they are almost certain to do, it just, it gets very scary. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and today, flattening the flu curve during a coronavirus pandemic. The worst time of year for viruses is at our doorstep. During the winter, we see surges in adenoviruses, respiratory syncytial viruses, more commonly known as RSV, mild coronaviruses that cause colds. They're everywhere. Basically, all the cold and flu-like illnesses we've come to expect when the weather turns cold. And, of course, the actual flu, which can be an efficient killer in its own right. Influenza kills tens of thousands of Americans every year, though the numbers can vary widely. CDC estimates the flu killed more than 30,000 Americans in the 2018-2019 season. One season earlier, though, it killed 60,000 people. So the flu is a dangerous disease, and COVID has killed nearly 190,000 Americans since the first death was reported in Washington state in February. Put the two together, and we have the potential for an unimaginable health crisis. We'll talk about that and how we can all help prevent it. Let's get back to Connery. He's preparing for the worst case scenario, a bat flu season and a COVID surge in Montana because asthma puts him at risk for severe disease if he becomes infected with either virus. Right now, his asthma is well controlled. He uses an inhaler once a day. Over the years, we've had to really tinker with his maintenance Um, regimen to make sure that he stays healthy and um, we've had a lot of challenges although it's it's very well controlled um, now knock on wood Um, but it's something that we have to keep a constant eye on for sure either covid or the flu or god forbid both could cause him real problems so nicole her husband their daughter and connery are all getting their flu shots they haven't missed gear since 2009. Since then, like basically I haunt my pediatrician's Facebook page waiting for them to say, we have flu shots and we're like in there right away doing that to get it done. As you might imagine, Nicole has very little patience for people who don't get their vaccines. Oh, I get so angry, especially because that's also why he got um, whooping cough. Um, because we there's there are parts of Montana where anti-vax sentiments are very strong. See, Connery got whooping cough last spring and had to miss his high school choir's trip to New York City. That trip was a very big deal to him, Nicole says, and he was devastated. She was devastated. And now the pandemic. He'll never get to tour with his musical groups. His tour this spring was canceled, of course. Uh, The one next spring almost certainly will be canceled. So he'll never get to do that. Those are some of the costs that occur when enough people don't vaccinate. Viruses start to regain their foothold in communities, leaving the vulnerable exposed. 
And in this pandemic, the vulnerable are already exposed enough. Add the flu to COVID, those at risk and everyone else are going to need to work together to keep infection rates down. But Nicole knows from experience, it's hard to get enough people to get flu shots to make a real difference. And I, I, I just don't know how to convince people to care about other people. We've heard a lot of talk over the last several months about a second wave of COVID crashing over the country during flu season. Dr. Drew Harris is a population health analyst and an assistant professor at Thomas Jefferson University. I think the, one of the mistakes we make is assuming there's just one massive wave for the entire country. But what you have are really lots of localized waves that hit at different times. So COVID is here. It's kind of like a game of whack-a-mole at this point with surges in different areas that subside when people start taking pandemic precautions. Again, you know, distancing, wearing their masks, avoiding crowds, washing their hands. But when people stop taking these precautions, infection rates climb. Think of it this way. When you take an, you see you have an infection and you take an antibiotic, they always tell you take all the pills in the bottle because if you stop halfway through, you even though you're feeling better, you've gotten the infection under control, you haven't totally eradicated it, the infection will come roaring back again. And sometimes it comes back even worse because resistance develops. Well, the same thing is happening in communities. If you don't totally suppress it and follow through until the virus is really down to a very low level, spreading through the community, the minute you stop the mitigation efforts, the minute you open things up and let people connect to each other again, the virus will go back to doing what viruses do, which is uh, spread from person to person. Right. And that's true of influenza, too. They're both respiratory viruses and they both spread in much the same way, which means the rate of COVID virus infection and influenza infection could increase in tandem, which would be a problem for hospitals. If you got flu occurring at the same time as COVID, then that means an even greater demand on healthcare services and supplies and materials and PPE and all the things we need to control uh, the COVID virus are going to now be needed also for the flu virus. So how are hospitals preparing for flu season combined with COVID? And this is an area that has reclining chairs and seats available for the patients. Dr. Ralph Riviello is the chair of emergency medicine at UT Health San Antonio and University Hospital in San Antonio. So he says at university, they have set up respiratory pods. Uh, they're all masked. The staff is masked and in PPE that are working there. We have very large HEPA filters which filter the air and recirculate the air. So patients who have symptoms of COVID or the flu will first get seen there. But wait, the initial symptoms of COVID and the flu, well, they're the same. Fever, body aches, fatigue, sore throat, cough, uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Those symptoms are common with both the flu and with COVID. Uh, that's what's going to make it difficult to 
tell them apart? In fact, Triviello says there are several respiratory viruses that circulate in the winter that have similar initial presentations. So we will screen for the two that are more serious and that we potentially can do something for one of them at this point in time. Um, And, you know, if you're flu positive and you meet certain criteria, uh, you may be eligible for oral medications uh, to treat the flu. If you're COVID positive, um, you know, it's more of the follow up and symptomatic management, but recognizing who's at risk for developing worsening symptoms for either the flu or COVID uh, and then treating those patients appropriately. Doctors need to have a good idea of what you might have because the treatment protocols are different for each disease. But there is one symptom that is unique to COVID that may help doctors sort patients out. You know, I think one of the big uh, differentiating factors as far as the symptoms that a patient may have uh, for COVID versus the flu uh, is going to be the loss of taste or smell. Still, there is one thing about the convergence of flu season and the COVID pandemic that has doctors really concerned. It's the possibility of co-infection. There is evidence that a person can become infected with both flu and COVID at the same time. What might that mean? Patients with underlying medical problems, the elderly, immunocompromised patients, if they get the flu, they you know get it much worse than other people. And if they get COVID virus, they could actually get it much worse and have many more complications. And I just worry that having two infections in certain people that, you know, are respiratory infections that can attack the lungs, it could be very hard for those patients. Also, what if some people don't get the two viruses at the same time? What if they get both viruses, but at different times? So maybe you get sick in October and we find out it's COVID and then you're sick again in December and now we find out it's influenza. So would being sick with one make you more sick when you get the other in a few weeks or a month or two? As with most everything else, when a novel virus emerges, there is a sharp learning curve on this. Riviello says there is just still a lot we don't know. So I don't think we have enough data to tell us how people are going to react, how sick or not sick they're going to be, who could get it twice, meaning COVID versus influenza, both at once and all that kind of stuff. But there are some things we do know. First, let's look to the Southern Hemisphere. Their flu season is winding down and it might give us some idea about what we might expect. Dr. Jean Patterson is a virologist at Texas Biomedical Research Institute. Her lab works on the development of countermeasures against potential biological weapons, which is pretty cool. But like most every infectious diseases expert in the world right now, she's currently focused on COVID. And she says flu season down under this year was mild. And that's almost predictable, given that there's so much social distancing and mask wearing going on and hand washing. I mean, one of the predictions people had that I even had last in the beginning of the COVID 
crisis was that we would probably shut down the flu season early. And indeed, we did. According to estimates, it was shut down about six weeks early because people were finally doing what they're supposed to be doing during flu season, which is staying home when they're sick, you know, wearing masks. We've never worn that before, but that's certainly an impacted flu transmission, washing your hands and social distancing. Okay, so one of the reasons flu season was mild in the Southern Hemisphere is many countries are strictly adhering to pandemic precautions. Got it. Wait, (laughs) Americans aren't doing great at that, though. We could certainly do better, but whatever precautions we did take had, 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 had some effect. And hopefully we're getting better at these precautions. Um, we seem to know better what we need. And we didn't wear masks in the beginning either, which we're doing now, which might have a greater impact on flu transmission. Dr. Riviello completely co-signs with Dr. Patterson on all of that. The way the flu is spread um, is actually um, mitigated and diminished by what we're already doing. Wearing masks, um, social distancing, hand hygiene. Hand hygiene is huge. And, you know, if we look at the number of people now walking around with hand sanitizer, the availability of hand sanitizer every place you go, that in and of itself is probably going to go a long way to help prevent um, spread of the flu. So what else might help? Flu shots. Back to Patterson, she says they're important every year, but in a pandemic year, they're crucial. I, I just think it's, it is so important this year that we have a, a light flu season, not only because so people won't get very sick and perhaps die, but because our hospital situation would become so much worse. So it really behooves all of us to make that special effort this year to really go out of your way to try and get the flu vaccine. And as early as possible, September, early October is the best time. Let's rope Dr. Harris back into this. He's our population health scientist. What's the best case scenario for flu season? Uh, Best case scenario is that um, all of the mitigation efforts that we've employed to keep COVID from spreading are also doing a good job of keeping flu from spreading. So we see a very mild flu season with not that many cases detected. And we have a vaccine that is highly effective against the circulating strain. And lots of people decide, you know what, I want to be safe. I don't want to have to wonder whether I have flu or COVID, so I'm taking the flu shot. And I don't know if we want to hear this, but what's the worst case scenario? People decide that masks aren't really very helpful, uh, that all of this is a big hoax. And they go about their business thinking that they're doing wonders for the economy. And we get hit with both a massive wave of COVID-19 and influenza at exactly the same time, um, causing us to have to shut everything down yet again with all of the economic and emotional and physical harm that that causes uh, for people, especially the most vulnerable in society. Flu cases start to really increase in November, and COVID-19 is here. And we talked to Dr. Harris a bit about the possibility of what people call a second wave earlier in the show. Let's zoom in on that idea, shall we? See, here's the thing. The United States is really big 
Texas is big, y'all. And here in San Antonio, where Petri Dish is based, officials aren't talking about this as a sustained first wave or, or even a potential second wave. They're already talking about a third wave or spike of COVID infections. Other places like Hawaii, for example. Hawaii could double the number of cases that it has uh, in the next three months if they don't change the course. Juan Gutierrez is the chair of the mathematics department at University of Texas, San Antonio, and he's part of a team of scientists creating a very detailed COVID-19 model for the United States. Our producer, Dominic Anthony Walsh, got the chance to chat with him. So, hi, Dominic. Hi, Bonnie. Yeah, so Juan Gutierrez has these detailed county-by-county models of COVID-19 trends. So, let's figure out where we are as a country with COVID. Okay, so let's run with Gutierrez's example. Hawaii had a little bump in cases in April, and that was quickly flattened. Right, and now it's experiencing a surge in cases. So it's more of a second wave or a first spike, depending on how you look at it. Either way, in response to the surge, the government issued a new set of orders. Uh, In light of this new surge in cases, I am proposing to the counties and working with all of the mayors to reinstate some of the measures uh, that we've uh, relaxed over the last few weeks. Uh, First, we're we're seeking to limit social gatherings to 10 or fewer. That's the Uh, governor, David Ige. Juan Gutierrez and his team haven't seen the effect of that order in their models just yet. Now, what we're showing here What we show in the model is not the effect of that order. We don't try to predict the effect of that order. We we only uh, try to predict under the current conditions. And the the current conditions is that the effect of that order has not propagated through epidemiological dynamics. That sounds kind of like what happened in Texas back in June and July. It's similar. Last time we spoke with Gutierrez, his model showed cities in Texas headed towards a New York City level of disaster, a quarter million cases by the end of the summer. But here we are, and thankfully we didn't have a New York City level disaster. It got bad, but we avoided that nightmarish scenario, in part because Governor Greg Abbott eventually closed bars and issued a mask order. And this is one of the things that's really difficult about creating a COVID-19 trend model. Government action can completely change things. And Juan Gutierrez is a mathematician, a very data-driven quantitative scientist. And uh, as a scientist, I prefer not to speculate to only provide information that is supported by a reproducible and robust methodology. Because of this rigorous approach to modeling, there are only a few parameters that guide the model. There are things that, at this point, we know from science. How long after exposure does a person become infectious? How long do they stay infectious? How long do they stay infectious if they're symptomatic versus asymptomatic? The science around these metrics is solid, so they play an important role in the forecast, looking ahead. The model also does track the effects of governmental action, but that effect is not forward-looking. It looks at how the trends change after the action, rather than trying to predict the effect once an action is announced. So the formula that guides the model has this little carve-out for governmental action, but it is a variable, and it changes as the data changes, rather than being a set value that guides the model's forecast. He's saying the model for Hawaii could change. Yeah, and he thinks it's likely that it will, just like Texas did. 
but again, he'll wait for the data to tell him what the effect of the order is. And one of the important aspects of this model is that it really digs down into county-by-county county data. So he can see in real time which counties are most affected by government action. And he has a great example of a state where various counties are handling COVID-19 very differently. Uh, there is, depending on where you are in Georgia, very different government responses and different responses to those government responses. I remember a bit ago, Georgia's governor and the mayor of Atlanta got into a pretty serious altercation over masks. Yes, a big fight. Georgia's Republican governor, Brian Kemp, sued Atlanta's Democratic mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, over her mask order. And we can argue about a mandate for a mask or not, but all the people arguing agree people should wear a mask. And I agree. I've been doing that for weeks. Dr. Toomey and I have been on the road doing that for weeks. But we also have to protect the livelihoods. And that's the governor responding to a question about whether he was playing politics with the litigation against the Atlanta mayor. The state eventually withdrew the lawsuit, and the mask mandate remains in place in Atlanta. So about a tenth of the Georgia population lives in or near Atlanta, where cases are happening. And at the state level, there's just a strong recommendation that people wear masks. Right. So let's look at two counties. First, Gwinnett County. It's right next to Atlanta. The mayor's mask order doesn't apply to the approximately 930,000 people here. Since 1980, it's been a Republican stronghold until 2016, when it voted blue. Now in East Georgia, there's Jenkins County. It's a little community of about 8,600 people, less than a tenth the size of Gwinnett. It's been solid red since 2000, and it leaned more Republican in 2016 than it ever had since 1972, when Nixon was reelected. So Gwinnett County, near Atlanta, is seeing COVID-19 cases dropping off right now. But in Jenkins... This goes in the totally opposite direction as Gwinnett County. Cases are spiking. And see this. This is why you don't predict the effect of government action without data. Right. Governor Kemp's mask suggestion has a different effect in different areas. In Jenkins County, it appears that people are not following the guidance. Personal politics and community dynamics can have a big influence on how seriously people take this outbreak. And rural Republican areas are less likely to follow the governor's mask recommendation than a moderate suburb or a Democratic city. But all of that nuance is difficult to fit into a mathematical model. Okay, so Gutierrez's model is essentially an aggregate of county-by-county data. It avoids speculation and tells us where we're headed if conditions remain the same. So with that caveat in mind, that this model assumes conditions remain the same, where is the country as a whole headed? Nationwide, we are going to a place in which uh, if we have today about uh, 6 million cases, most likely by November, mid-November, we would add another probably 3 million cases. We could have an increase of 40% to 60% in the upper range. So it could go up to 10 million. The model shows it's likely we'll reach a total of nearly 8 million cases by the end of September, when flu season begins. So, Dominic, those numbers make me think we could surge right past 200,000 deaths by the end of this month. So Juan Gutierrez is very cautious when it comes to predicting deaths. The death rate has been falling very slowly as the pandemic has continued. Because we learn things about the disease, 
we learn uh, how to better manage patients. And in general, people are staying shorter periods in hospitals and our, uh, the fatality rate is dropping slowly, but it's dropping. So uh, we could play a, 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 a game of numbers. Certainly that would be a speculation. And he doesn't like to speculate. He does not. So with the caveat that the fatality rate could drop, let's make a conservative forecast. The United States death rate is still higher than the rest of the world, but let's assume the rate is the global 2%. One out of every 50 people who get COVID-19 die. And we're adding about 3 million cases by mid-November. We could see 60,000 more people die, bringing the country to a quarter million dead from COVID-19 in the space of about nine months. This pandemic, man, I don't like those numbers. I don't like them at all. So let's get back to science and see what we could do about this. Because Juan Gutierrez and his team aren't the only people tracking COVID-19 data. His model is forward-looking and is based on official numbers. But testing results usually take a day or two, sometimes much longer. And some people have to wait several days even to get tested. So that information is delayed, and that leads to a sort of fuzzy, delayed picture of outbreaks. So if you want to know what's going on right now, is it possible to get a clearer picture? Um, so we've been doing this for many years, working with CDC, showing that you could crowdsource flu in populations um, and predict flu seasons and understand the efficacy of vaccines. And then, you know, we adapted this uh, technology to COVID in March. John Brownstein is an epidemiologist at Boston Children's Hospital and a professor with the Harvard Medical School. The idea was, you know, we had very limited information about cases and populations. We didn't have testing ramped up. And we started built, we rebuilt the system to sort of, to think about a new surveillance source to understand COVID as it was spreading around the country. That system is called COVID Near You. It's based on another system called Flu Near You. But obviously not everyone self-reports, and we already talked about the issues with the official data. So what good does this map do? The COVID Near You data, because it's capturing illness, so it's very early stages of the outbreak in different communities, we've shown that it is an early indicator. Um, for instance, when we started seeing the increases happening across the Sun Belt, uh, we started seeing you know increases in reporting of COVID-like symptoms, places like Florida and Texas and Arizona. And so that data in itself is, is valuable. And then as we sort of combine it with other surveillance sources, it can provide this sort of early warning of what's taking place in the population. Brownstein says this approach paid off giving early insight into COVID outbreaks before official data became available. But, 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 like we said earlier, early flu symptoms are very similar to early COVID-19 symptoms. So as flu season kicks into high gear and COVID-19 spikes pop up in various communities, how will Brownstein even know what they're looking at? 
Yeah, we definitely have a challenge of sort of two uh, overlapping viral epidemics that will probably be hitting around the same time. Um, that's where we're going to rely on laboratory data to tell us sort of what viruses sort of most predominant in particular communities. So we'll have that as sort of validation. We'll also be working at sort of developing different case definitions uh, for COVID and flu. They're overlapping, you know, symptoms like fever and cough but then there's unique symptoms like, you know, loss of taste and smell. And so we'll be able to build case definitions that are different, although overlapping, and that's where sort of working with additional data sources will help sort of tease them out. Additional data sources like positivity rates of COVID-19 tests, for example, and the results of flu tests. None of this is foolproof, but it all will definitely help focus our fuzzy picture. But even focused, our fuzzy picture does not become crystal clear. Testing, contact tracing, and other epidemiological tools are still stumbling behind this fast-moving COVID virus. Ideally, we could trace every contact an infected person had during the possible window of transmission. But that's not what's happening for every person. And ideally, every person who came in contact with that person during that window would get tested. Well, that's not happening either. And even for those who did come in contact, they usually only get a test if they develop symptoms. Honestly, it's kind of a mess. Good evening. I'm Mayor Ron Nuremberg with Bear County Judge Nelson Wolf tonight. In San Antonio, every weekday evening, the mayor, Ron Nuremberg, and the Bear County Judge, County Judge is kind of like a county executive in a lot of places around the country, but here it's a judge, and Judge Nelson Wolf and the mayor sit behind a table in front of cameras and reporters for their COVID update. They're usually joined by a member of the San Antonio Metropolitan Health District. Tonight, we're reporting 185 new cases of COVID-19, which brings our total to 44,641 in our communities. For about a half an hour, they update the community and answer questions. Metro health employees are pretty good at public health messaging. They almost always bring their answers back to whatever it is they want local news media to focus on. Infected. I also want to make a plug for the flu vaccine. So in just a few months, um, towards the end of September, we should have the flu vaccine available here in San Antonio. And it's going to be real important that we um, all get vaccinated for the flu so that we can hopefully distinguish between whether we've got the flu or whether it's COVID. Colleen Bridger often takes a seat at that table. She's the assistant city manager and former and current interim director of Metro Health. But before we talk about the flu, where are we, San Antonio, with COVID-19? Are we still in that first wave? For me, the first increase in COVID cases that we saw in April I describe as a wave. The second uptick in cases that we saw the end of June and into July, I call a spike because it was 10 to 15 times bigger than that first wave. Um, And so what, what we are preparing for is another spike. So something that is along the same lines as what we saw in July, rather than the first, you know, introduction of COVID-19 into the community, which we had 50, 60 cases a day. 
So the second spike has already crested in San Antonio, and now we're bracing for a third spike that may occur related to college students coming back to town and schools preparing for in-person instruction. And if you recall, it was Mother's Day, Memorial Day, and the 4th of July preceding that really awful second spike when we saw hospitals in San Antonio and around Texas hit capacity. So how will the approaching flu season factor into a possible third spike in this city? If we have a bad flu season and people end up in the hospital and then we have a resurgence of COVID-19 and people end up in the hospital, our hospitals um, will struggle mightily to be able to um, keep up with that. And on top of that, every year there's some uncertainty about the efficacy of the flu vaccine. It's safe, no question about that, but flu viruses are constantly mixing and mutating, and it's very possible that a strain could emerge this year that we just haven't seen yet. We're not sure. We won't know until flu season gets here, until we know what viruses are circulating in the community, and then we know whether or not the flu vaccine is a good match for that. Some years we do great, some years... um, we don't do as well, but the bottom line is it's better than not getting a vaccine. Bridger sees two possible scenarios, and they're a lot like the ones outlined by Dr. Harris earlier in the show. Worst case, COVID spikes, we have a bad flu year, and hospitals struggle under the weight of it all. But alternatively... So the optimist in me says that people are going to continue to wear masks, practice physical distancing, wash their hands, and stay home when they're sick. When they do that, that will have a positive effect, not just on our COVID cases, but also on our flu cases, because that's the same way you transmit COVID-19 is very similar to how you transmit the flu. Just go ahead and fill this out for me. All right, cool. Y'all are together? Yes. That's me with my daughter the other day at a nearby drugstore. No fever. You haven't been sick. This is just a routine. Nope. No allergic okay. reactions in the past. Nope. No, no pain. We're there to get our flu shots. Do you have a preference, left or right? No. Oh. The Texas Health Department is already starting to get reports of influenza-like illnesses around the state. Though, again, COVID starts off as an influenza-like illness and teasing out which is which will be tough all winter. But reports are starting to come in, so we're getting our flu vaccines right now. You okay over there, kid? Just a quick shot in the arm. Yay, protected. And we significantly decrease the chance that the flu-like illness we get this winter, if we get one, is the flu. But when I brought my daughter in with me for our shots, I wasn't actually thinking about us. I was actually thinking about Connery. Connery Ritter from earlier in the show. So I was thinking about how he missed his choir trip to New York City because not enough people in Montana are vaccinated against whooping cough. And I was thinking about how sick he was in 2009. And I was thinking about his mom in the middle of the night, listening for every labored breath. See, these shots weren't for us, although I will be very happy if we don't get the flu or if we do to get milder cases. 
But still, those shots were for everyone else. They were for Connery. They were for my college friend in New York whose daughter survived cancer, so she's at risk of serious disease, but she can't get vaccines. Those shots are for anyone else who needs protection but can't, for whatever reason, protect themselves. My daughter and I will do whatever we can to help protect them. So Connery's mom said she doesn't know how to teach people to care about other people. And you know what? Neither do I. But I do know what I can do. I can do my part and I can model for my child what it looks like to care about other people. If we work together on this, we can have an easy flu season. And if we do that, we can also suppress COVID infections. This winter, we can flatten all the curves, but we can only do it if we do it together. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh and me. Our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Our news director is Dan Katz. This is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.